Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by JJ McCullough, who's a Canadian-based columnist for The Washington Post and a successful YouTuber who produces weekly videos on politics and popular culture. JJ is a friend of mine and a highly interesting, if at times controversial, thinker and commentator. I'm grateful to speak to him about his background, perspective, and experience as a leading new media figure in Canada. Thanks for joining me, JJ. Thanks for having me. I mentioned that you're a successful YouTuber. You have nearly 700,000 subscribers to your channel, which is home to roughly 400 weekly videos. How did you come to decide to start producing these videos, which cover everything from Canadian politics to national flags to the origins and history of the Falun Gong movement? So I have a pretty clear-cut origin story, I must say. So I've been a political commentator for, I don't know, over a decade now. And in my last sort of major incarnation, when I was sort of political commenting full time, I was actually working for Sun News, for the uh, for the dearly departed uh, Sun News Network, you know, which is obviously has its share of problems. But I had a good time working uh, with them and uh, it came to a very uh, sudden end. You know, I always tell people I, I so I was working at the Vancouver studio. I would go there. You know, every day I would record a couple hits, as we say, on these panel shows and and whatnot. And I really sort of got into the rhythm of it. You know, I had a lot of friends there and it was fun. It was fun being on television. And I enjoyed the kind of the spontaneous live TV commentary, which was something new for me at that time. And, you know, one day I went into work Thursday and uh, Thursday night, we got an email from the producers at like 3 a.m. And it was like, uh, the network's not working. We're pulling the plug, you know. Be there by noon, get all your stuff out because we're changing the locks. So it was uh, very sudden and very abrupt. And uh, I really felt, as I think most uh, Sun News employees did at the time, that the rug was sort of pulled out from under us. And a lot of us were kind of left driftless and not really quite clear what we were going to do next. But what working at Sun and to a lesser extent when I was working at CTV as well, also doing sort of on-air political commentary, I realized that I like being on camera. Uh, Perhaps I'm a little bit vain in that way or... I just like uh, talking to the screen. And I realized at that point was that uh, I could possibly make it as a YouTuber. I am of a generation where YouTube wasn't really something I grew up with, but it was something that was sort of becoming more and more on my radar, interestingly enough, at around the same time that I was uh, sort of really getting in deep with Sun. So anyway, the long and the short of it is, is that right after Sun ended, I, you know, went down to the Best Buy and I bought myself a little camcorder and I just set it up in my living room. And instead of going down to the Sun News studio every day and doing uh, hits for the TV network, I started seeing if I could make uh, 
weekly videos for what was then a brand new YouTube channel. And I've basically been doing it ever since. It's been about six years and I've released a video every week, almost without interruption since then. I'll ask you uh, about the world of YouTube in a minute, but let's just talk a, a bit about your production function as someone, as you say, who's produced a, a video a week for the better part of six years. It seems to me, at least in some circles, there's a conventional wisdom that online videos should be short, simple, and even a bit dumbed down. I'm always struck, JJ, that your videos sort of reject these ideas. They're you know typically 15 to 20 minutes long. Sometimes they run as long as 40 minutes, and they often involve com complex topics. I don't want you to give away any trade secrets, but why do you think your approach has been successful? What do social media experts get wrong? YouTube is a very, very diverse platform. I think that when people are not super familiar with it, it is very easy to stereotype its content as being all one way or another. You know, oftentimes this is generational. You know, I, I speak to people that are that are my age, frankly. You know, I'm almost 40. I'm 38 years old. But I speak to people my age. And, and a lot of times, like, we haven't really grown up with YouTube. So it's very easy to kind of, like, stereotype it. And I think that there is a kind of cliche that was certainly very present when I was young that... Uh, you know, YouTube is like where people post cat videos or prank videos or kind of silly sort of frivolous content. And there's no doubt that that's part of it and certainly part of it that appeals to, I think, what is the largest demographic on, on YouTube, which is sort of young boys. But on the other hand, there has always been like a lot of much more serious, much more substantial, much more sort of frankly intellectual uh, content, much more so than even I myself produce. So, for example, there's a thriving subculture on YouTube of uh, what they're called the video essayists, who are people that make videos that are, you know, 20, 30, 45, even in some cases, two hours or more long, in which people do like incredibly deep dives into a single topic, very well researched, very intellectual, very high minded. You know, I have a few friends in sort of the video essay community, you know, a friend of mine, uh, his channel is called Knowing Better. He just did like an epic one hour video essay about the history of, of sort of slavery and and uh, black civil rights in America. You know, it, he was telling me that it's his most successful video he's released in a very long time. So I'm not really doing anything that's that remarkable or that unique. In fact, if anything, I would sort of say that my stuff is a little dumbed down compared to some of the educational content and some of the intellectual content that's being produced on YouTube these days. It's, it's just a matter of People being willing to look for it, people being able to, uh, you know, dig around a bit, explore, figure out who the big names are, who are the people worth taking seriously. Because, like I said, it's always been part of the uh, of the YouTube experience. It's it's uh, it hasn't. It's not just uh, cat videos and frivolous content. There's a lot of very serious people on the on the site. As you alluded, JJ, you've been given a fascinating window into the odd world of different online genres and subgenres and these these different cultures that you mentioned. You did a video two or three years ago, for instance, on the weird and even dangerous world of male body image content. Maybe you could reflect on the unique culture of these online worlds. Uh, what are those of us less familiar missing? That's a that's a very good question, and it's it's a very big topic because YouTube and the online world in general is extremely diverse and is full of subcultures that really often have no parallel in the real world, but are felt and, uh, you know, the subject of great loyalty within these exclusive online spaces. So, for example, like if we're thinking about politics, for instance, 
There is a ton of political content on the internet, including on YouTube and other forms of social media, that is hyper-ideological in a way that can often be like truly bizarre. You know, there are people that have created niche communities about being the most esoteric extremist flavor of right wing or left wing in a way that has really no relevance to the broader world. These are people that are not engaged in elections or or follow the news that closely or have public policy preferences of one way or another. It is just very important to them that they identify as, you know, an anarcho-socialist, you know, of some esoteric school or as some sort of like neo, uh, you know, reactionary monarchist, you know, ultra-orthodox Christian of some sect or another. And, and they sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, they kind of these identities in, in unique online spaces and they fight with each other and they make content and memes and jokes and stuff that's exclusively for these different communities. I think that yeah, what you alluded to before, you know, I made a video about sort of male body image and male identity. And that was in part response to a very esoteric community that is very strong online of, uh, you know, what's been is sort of at times described as like the manosphere, basically like a hyper, hyper sort of masculine, masculinist I guess we could call sort of identity politics sort of space that is all about interpreting the role of the man in a very, very hyper literal, very, I would say, quite reductive way. And in terms of interactions with women and, uh, and you know, the purpose of a man in the modern world and stuff, it's it's just really sort of fascinating stuff, because the thing that that interests me about this is that there are a lot of young people who I think believe this is what the real world is all about. They only interact with ideas that come from online spaces. And a lot of these ideas that exist in online spaces are just so extreme and are so disconnected from real world issues as opposed to the issues that only exist within subcultures and, and sort of subcommunities that have existed to talk about them in the first place, if that makes sense. So let's now transition from the online world to the political world. And maybe one way to enable that transition is to get you to comment on the Trudeau government's pending legislation that would, in effect, bring Canada's content regulation framework to YouTube and other streaming services. Why are you opposed to legislation? And why do you think your video on the subject that you produced in the last parliament if I recall correctly, is one of the most successful you've ever produced. I am deeply opposed to this legislation, Bill C-11, as I was opposed to Bill C-10. You know, as I was just describing some of sort of the negative, I think, uh, aspects of, of YouTube in terms of some of the esoterica and sort of the radicalizing effect that it can have, the tremendously positive side of YouTube is the degree to which it is a very, very creator-driven and audience-driven platform. It is an incredibly democratic, it is an incredibly uh, sort of market-driven platform. It creates content that succeeds or failed basically on the basis of whether or not it can form an audience, whether or not it can actually, you know, gain some public credibility in some ways. And what the Trudeau government sort of aspires to do is kind of put its finger on the scale and sort of mess up what I think has been a very successful 16-year experiment in creating a truly sort of democratic, market-driven entertainment, news, education, media platform in favor of trying to turn it into, forcibly turn it into, something that serves very narrow, ideological, nationalistic ends. 
uh, really in a way that's quite unprecedented anywhere else in the world. You know, when the Trudeau government says quite explicitly that YouTube needs to be regulated to protect Canada's cultural sovereignty, I mean, that is a deeply radical and I would say deeply regressive premise. The idea that we are going to use the CRTC to regulate YouTube in such a way that it will be forced to boost the content of Canadian creators and Canadian content that, you know, Ottawa determines more Canadians should be watching. You know, the idea that Canadians cannot be trusted to enjoy content on their own terms, but rather government has to sort of intervene and sort of dictate the kind of content that it thinks the people of this country should be watching. And, uh, you know, sort of strong arm YouTube under penalty of enormous fine to rig their algorithms and search functions and home pages and possibly even subscription tabs in order to shove a very particular, very ideologically defined sort of set of videos and other content into the uh, into the eyeballs of its of its audience. I view it as like extremely illiberal and really just ruining what has been a tremendously good thing. And a, I would add a good thing for Canadians. You know, I have 700,000 subscribers. There are 400, over 400 YouTubers from Canada who are more successful than I am. So this platform and its unregulated state has produced enormous Canadian success stories. It has made stars of literally hundreds and hundreds of Canadians, some of whom are now, I would say, among some of the biggest uh, Canadian celebrities in the world, certainly in the eyes of the youth. So I don't know, the whole the whole exercise just really strikes me as something that's special interest driven and frankly, just like deeply, deeply ignorant, you know, without being sort of too uh, flip about this, it does kind of strike me as a little bit of like, you know, the boomer political class trying to regulate a platform that they don't quite understand, but nevertheless fear. JJ, in your answer, you touched on a few key touch points of your political ideology. You referred to nationalism. You refer you reflected a kind of commitment to small d democratic ideals. I want to turn the conversation to your political ideas, and I intend to touch on both. Uh, one of your one of the main political ideas that I associate with you is about Canadian identity. Your your thinking and writing starts from the idea that the tendency to focus on Canada as different from the U.S. fails to recognize that the more interesting and important insight is how similar Canada and the U.S. are and how, how different the two of us are from other parts of the world. What is the basis of this North American identity? How does it manifest itself? And how is it different from European culture and elsewhere? Well, that is a a big but very important question. And it's certainly a question that I, in my videos, and to some extent in, in my writing as well, I really do try to engage with. You know, Canada and the United States are two countries that are part of a shared project. You know, this is the project of, you know, settling this continent, of settling North America, of creating a new society, a new civilization on this continent that did not previously exist. And the way that that cultural, uh, civilizational experiment has played out, has always unfolded in tandem between the two countries. Canadian and American development have never occurred completely severed from each other, but have rather always existed in a symbiotic relationship. And frankly, I would say that uh, the Canadian side of things has always been far more dependent on the U.S. than vice versa, though the flow has always been has always been mutual in terms of people and ideas and technology and so forth. And so I have just kind of always felt that for a Canadian to be proud of his culture, to be proud of his society, to be proud of his civilization, you have to begin by acknowledging that simple reality. 
that we are sort of engaged in a common project on this continent, and we always have been, and that has always been the history of this continent. And you can't sort of put your head in the sand and try to cling to what I would argue is a very sort of like European conception of of nationalism that is based on a kind of sense of cultural purity. You know, I do think that Canada and the United States have always been defined by their diversity to some degree. You know, that this has been a very fluid and very experimental civilization that was set up on this continent. And that, you know, therefore, uh, things like barriers and walls and, and so on are always the complete antithesis of what has made us traditionally great, which has been this kind of fluidity and experimentation and entrepreneurship. So when I see things like, say, Bill C-11, which is framed in, frankly, like the kind of language that I think you would expect from a much more sort of chauvinistic European government, like, say, Viktor Orban's Hungary, where you're talking about things like cultural purity and you're talking about things like the danger of foreign influences and the danger of, of foreign ideas and foreign culture and that somehow it is in the government's mandate to preserve the patriotic, nationalistic integrity of the people I mean, that to me is is never been something that has been at the root of anything successful that has occurred on, on either side of this uh, border. So it's stuff that I'm very opposed to. But, you know, the kind of stuff that I'm in favor of, and I see that I engage with this a lot in my videos, is like, can we... Can we look at the way that North American life is lived on a day-to-day -day basis? And can we find things to appreciate on those grounds? I'm very interested in the idea of a celebration of North American identity as the first kind of true middle-class civilization that has ever really existed, a civilization that really begins and ends with the middle class and whose culture has always been defined by, you know, by the humility, or not the humility, the, the humble nature of middle-class uh, life and middle class luxuries and middle class pleasures, you know, middle class lifestyles. And so when I make videos about things like the the history of potato chips or the history of Christmas presents or, you know, history of, of Halloween or, you know, sort of soft things like this, it's easy for people, I think, to be judgmental and, and, to, and to argue that these subjects are kind of frivolous or even materialistic. But to me, a lot of that kind of bourgeois middle-classness is the culmination of the North American project and something that I think really deserves celebration on its own terms. That's a great answer, JJ. And it relates to another key part of your political identity that, as I mentioned earlier, you're a small-D Democrat, which is reflected in various aspects of your thinking, including your opposition to the monarchy. Where does your democratic impulse come from and what is wrong with the monarchy? <laughs> well, my democratic impulse, I suppose it comes basically back to my other sort of like grand theory of what this con continental civilization is, is supposed to be about. You know, it's supposed to be, I think, a, a society in which, you know, individuals are sovereign. You have a society in which the people truly rule. The people have, you know, escaped the old world and created a new world nation in their own image. And I think it's very essential that, you know, that the people rule, that the people be in charge. And that I like the idea of North American society being a fundamentally honest society, a society that kind of has to grapple with its own problems in the most sort of visible and public and at times, you know, even painful or difficult way. But nevertheless, when you have a strong democratic society, when the opinions of the people are truly the driving force of your politics, I think you're forced to, you know, address problems in a much more realistic way. You're forced to confront, you know, true challenges, but also delusions head on and work through them 
work through the kind of uh, if people have like ignorant or regressive opinions, you have to deal with that as much as you have to deal with people who have enlightened or progressive or, or, or useful ideas and opinions. The system just kind of has to work through it. And I just kind of think that ultimately that is a much better path to genuinely resolve problems and create a healthy and prosperous society than a society that is anti-democratic, that is in, in any way sort of like authoritarian or overly bureaucratic, where you have a kind of elite, uh, elite leadership class that is making all of the substantial decisions. And thus, you're really only as strong as the intelligence of, of that sort of class is. But when it comes to uh, when it comes to the monarchy, I mean, I, I guess I don't really have a super sort of sophisticated take on this. I mean, to me, monarchism is is just kind of a ridiculous ideology that has not uh, withstood the tests of time. I think there are very few, you know, functionalist sort of practical arguments that can be made in defense of the monarchy. You know, the monarchy doesn't frankly do anything. It doesn't contribute anything to the political culture or the culture at, at large. The only thing that people like about the monarchy is that to some people, certainly not to all people, it evokes a kind of, uh, I would say, rather cheap sentimentality. You know, people like the royal family in the way that they like celebrities. People like, you know, Buckingham Palace in the way that they like, you know, grand buildings and monuments and things. It's, But it's not a functional component part of our, of our political system. And I think it's a little bit ridiculous for any degree of sentimentality of that sort to be elevated to the, the status of constitutional law. To say that, you know, tax dollars and the political system should in any ways just kind of elevate a minority sentimentality preference, you know, the, the sort of the, um, I don't know, just the, the kind of the cultural fascination of one small group of society should somehow be elevated above everybody else's. Uh, it's why I'm not a monarchist. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Talking about the role in place of uh, minority cultures, let me ask about your commonly reflected perspective that Quebec looms too large in our politics and culture. What do you attribute that to, JJ? Is it simply a function of its parliamentary seat total, or is there another explanation? So my general explanation is that, I mean, I think that in one in one important respect, the Canadian political class has been very dominated by Quebecers. You know, I think that we have a lot of prime ministers, including the current prime minister, who come from Quebec, you know, or at the very least are sort of raised in a very Eastern narrative conception of what Canada is, which is this idea that Canada fundamentally is a nation that was spawned from the two founding nations, that Canada is primarily a compact between English Canada and French Canada, between, frankly, between Ontario and Quebec with all of the other things sort of added on after the fact. And I just think that like, if you really buy into that theory of Canada, which is not enshrined in the Constitution, it's, it is simply just an interpretation of Canadian history. But if you buy into that theory, then it really it logically suggests that, you know, the Quebec people as one of the two founding nations should sort of be engaged in some form of co-governance of this country in perpetuity. 
It's why you hear sort of rhetoric, you know, from Eastern kind of political types that, for example, like if Quebec leaves Canada, then that's the breakup of the country. This kind of theory that Quebec is kind of the linchpin that holds the Canadian project together. And in some respects, the Canadian project would fail if, if Quebec was not sufficiently uh, appeased. And I guess just as a Western Canadian out here in British Columbia, that theory of Canada has never rung true to me at all. And, uh, you know, I've always been a much bigger proponent of the sort of the 10 equal provinces thesis, which I think is much more easy to justify by a reading of the of the Canadian Constitution than than the alternative. But I do think that just, you know, an Eastern preoccupation with a very Eastern centric theory of what Canada is, coupled with an overrepresentation of Quebecers in the federal government and in the political class, which is in part also borne by official bilingualism and official bilingualism requirements, which itself was an effort to sort of appease Quebec in the, in the interests of this, uh, of this sort of this narrow conception of what it means for Canada to succeed or fail. One final question about your worldview before we move on to your work as a journalist. Would you accept the premise, JJ, that a part of your worldview is contrarianism? You know, that is to say, Many of the positions you just outlined and, and various others that we won't cover today conflict with the kind of prevailing view of our leading opinion thinkers and writers? Or is it simply that through an exercise of kind of intellectual and philosophical thinking, you've come to adopt these very positions? I guess, in short, to understand J.J. McCullough, should we take for granted that you have an inherent kind of contrarianism to your political philosophy? You know, this is this is a, a label I get tagged with a lot, contrarianism. I mean, it's it's always been a little bit strange to me because I've always thought of myself as, as being like quite dispositionally conservative. Like ever since I was young, I just remember being somebody that was relatively defensive of the status quo, if anything, and and sort of wanting to preserve the kind of the existing order and being like quite skeptical of people that were overly rebellious or overly sort of destructive in their in their ideological disposition. So, I mean, I think that everybody enjoys being contrarian to some degree. I think everybody enjoys sort of imagining that they believe unique things that the sort of sheep-like majority does not. But that to me is much less important as a motive than just what I was talking about earlier when you asked me about the importance of democracy. And I said one of the importances, one of the important things about democracy is, is that it's a very honest form of government. And I try to carry myself as, as an honest person. Like I try to call it as I see it, you know? And I suppose maybe because I grew up in, in Western Canada and perhaps I was a little bit less indoctrinated with certain shibboleths of, of sort of Canadian nationalism and patriotism than perhaps I would have been if I'd grown up in Montreal or Toronto or, or Ottawa. Maybe I'm just kind of more blunt about observing things in a kind of unapologetic way. I read a quote a long time ago that always struck with me and because uh, I think it was quite profound where it says that honesty always comes off as shocking because it's rare. You know, most people don't actually have the courage to express their true opinions on things or they tend to defer to, you know, what they imagine to be expert opinion or people smarter than themselves. And I guess, you know, without like, you know, patting myself on the back too much, I've just always been a little bit like unintimidated by that. Like I've been willing to sort of say, like if I look at bilingualism and the bilingualism regime or the monarchy or, you know, the aspects of the parliamentary system, all of these kinds of things that I'm known for being a, a vocal critic on, I feel confident that I'm well-informed on these topics. And I feel like 
I know as good as anyone else when I'm offering a criticism of them. In a democratic society, I think we all have a right to our opinions. And I feel like my opinion is, is well-researched and I can defend it as good as anybody else, I hope. So, you know, I maybe I just have an abundance of confidence. Maybe it's unjustified. But I do feel like I'm. my goal is to just be honest and to be a clear communicator of, of, of facts as I see it. And, you know, as a public-facing person, as a, as a writer and a YouTuber... I just, I feel like I would be doing a disservice to my audience if I wasn't telling them the unvarnished truth. That's one thing, JJ, that I wish your critics understood about you. I, I think there's a tendency to assume in your writing and commentary that you're aiming to provoke. And I don't think they understand the kind of integrity that you have and the extent to which you kind of agonize over these big fundamental questions and then having chosen aside, you express it with the kind of bluntness and honesty that you just outlined. You know, but um, that comes with some professional risks. You've provoked major backlashes in various cases, and once in response to a column, which you argued that Quebec is a home to a disproportionate number of mass killings, and another National Review in which you argued that conservatives should reconcile themselves with transgender issues. I won't ask you to comment on these specific columns, but just generally, do you have any regrets over the years on some of the ideas or arguments that you've advanced um, in your columns or through other mediums? I think generally speaking, most recent arguments that I've made, you know, I mean, we all evolve and we all sort of change our opinions on things. But like, say, if, if we were to look at things that I've been writing in the last, you know, six years, seven years or so. I, I would say that most of it I, I, I stand by. You know, you can always look back and you can always say, well, I could have phrased that slightly differently or I could have put a little bit of a, a sharper sort of uh, clarification on that. But but no, I mean, I, I, I am not like I appreciate what you said earlier, Sean, like I am not writing with with the goal to provoke. There are certainly people out there who do do that, who write with the goal to provoke, who kind of get off on being controversial. I don't really like being controversial. That's not my goal. Like, I don't find it enjoyable when I know that people are mad at me or when people are writing vicious articles denouncing me and calling me an ignorant buffoon who shouldn't have the jobs that he has and shouldn't have the platforms that he has and is, you know, a dangerous force corrupting the minds of you know, whoever, like that stuff's not fun to hear. I, I, there's not, nothing about that that I enjoy, but it's like, my goal is to just call it as I see it, to, to, to contribute something useful to the discourse. You know, you can, <laughs> it's another, another great quote, right? Where Noam Chomsky, you know, a man who I don't have a lot in common with, but he has a great quote where he sort of says, you can either repeat the same old tired bromides that everyone else does, or you can say something true. And to a lot of people, it will come off like you're from Venus, you know, like you can just, you have to sort of choose, I suppose, the path that you want to take in the world of public commentary. And there are certainly in the same way that there's lots of people that enjoy being provocateurs, there are also a lot of people that enjoy being safe and enjoy sort of, you know, they kind of crave establishment approval. They kind of crave, uh, you know, getting the the good safe positions at the big sort of safe uh, newspapers or or on television or whatever. And I suppose that's just never been my goal. My goal has always been that if I am true to my own principles and and, you know, say what I what I honestly think and, and try to say useful and helpful and important things that can hopefully steer the direction of this country in, in a better 
way that I will be rewarded for it. And, you know, I'm happy to say that I have been. So it, it is a completely viable path. People don't need to be as nervous or as or as cautious. There are prices that you pay. And I mean, certainly, like, I'm never going to be the the darling of the of the press gallery or 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 go to the famous, you know, cocktail parties or whatever other cliche you want to say. But there are lots of people that appreciate what I have to say. And I get tremendously positive feedback. That's very that's very validating. And and I hope that, you know, when I'm an old man someday, I can look back and I can say, like, I'm proud of what I did. And I said the things that needed to be said because I do care about this country and I care about the issues. So that's uh, that's that's what I want my uh, my legacy to be. Somebody who's 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 honest integrity for the issues that matter came through in his work. You know, we've kind of talked around it, but it's worth asking you directly. Your writing tends to provoke, even trigger, a lot of mainstream journalists and pundits. What do you attribute that to? Oh man, I, I mean, I it's 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 hard to kind of like psychoanalyze your critics in that way. You know, it's it's easy to sort of pat yourself on the back and be like, oh, they just can't handle how real I am. But I mean, <laughs> I, I I don't want to sort of flatter myself in that way. I think it's just. I do think that some people in this country, in the pundit class, in the intellectual class, are just like really quite sheltered in a way and really quite close minded. And the argument that like I find just endlessly sort of exhausting is when people condescend to me and say things like, you just don't understand how it is, JJ. You just don't appreciate our system or our way or the Canadian way. And it's like, no, maybe I do understand it, but I reject it. And like, I have a right to reject it. Like you can be well informed of something on something and then still say like, this isn't good or I don't care for this. Whereas I think in, in, in Canada, there's this weird sort of like... I don't know, like assumption that the more you learn about a subject, whether it's the the parliamentary system or bilingualism or Canadian history in general or all of these kinds of things, like the more you learn about them, the more of an expert you become in them, the more of an apologist for the status quo you will inevitably become. That is sort of taken for granted, right? So, for example, like I'm very critical of the Canadian parliamentary system and a lot of the ways that Canadian democracy is played out. And the most common critic criticism of that is that I just don't understand it. Like, I must just be very ignorant and not appreciate it. And that, to me, contrasts a lot with, with what you see in America, right? Where, like, in America, you could be a very respected mainstream pundit who just sort of says, like, the U.S. Senate is crap. It should be changed. The Senate sucks, right? Like, you could say that and be treated very seriously. Whereas if I come out and say, like, the Westminster parliamentary system sucks, people are like, oh, how dare you say such a thing, you horrible, you know, <laughs> self-loathing, anti-patriot, you know? So it's it's just a, it's a curious political culture. And I suppose part of why I do what I do as well, I'm not doing it to provoke, but I suppose you could say that I am hoping that I can at least normalize some of these opinions a little bit more because I do think Canadian discourse would be a lot richer if you had people that were more willing to say what they truly think as opposed to saying what they think they're supposed to. I've kept you for some time. So why don't we come back where we started and I'll wrap up with a final question that I've wanted to ask you for, for some time. Why do you care so much about flags? <laughs> well, I, I, well, I don't know if I really do care that much about <laughs> flags. It's 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 something that I've become like this is this is it's the one sort of realm of of my sort of commentary life that I do kind of feel like I've sort of stumbled into a little bit. So like early on in my YouTube career, I was making videos on just like any random topic I could think of because I didn't really know what was going to connect with the public and and what would wouldn't. And I have a pretty sort of clear understanding now. 
But one of the things that really the public loved from the get-go was when I did some flag commentary. And I guess it's because there just weren't a lot of YouTubers talking about flags at the time. I mean, I know a lot about flags because like I I I was a nerdy kid who enjoyed memorizing all the different ones in the encyclopedia. But you know, flags are people like flags because they're I mean, everything's got one. Every like polity and group and geographic zone in the world has a flag. So there's lots to learn. It sort of gets to our desire to kind of memorize things and sort things and learn, you know, ordered lists of of objects and categorize them. And uh, and I mean, flags are are attractive. They're uh, they're great sort of examples of of a very clean and aesthetically pleasing visual design with bright colors and geometric shapes. They're just inherently pleasing objects that I think intrigues people. And they also have a lot to teach about history and uh, and and politics and cultural identity. So they are like they're just a great shorthand introduction to a lot of stuff. There's probably no kind of cultural object that is more dense in meaning than a flag. And so even though I think people can fetishize flags far too much and people can read too much into the meaning of flags, you know, I did a video not too long ago uh, sort of outlining some of my problems with flags and the way that flags are used in the contemporary culture. But when it comes to certainly when it comes to young people, I think flags can be a tremendous introduction to a lot of complex topics in a very easy to digest package. JJ McCullough, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. And uh, we'll aim to have you back on soon because there's so many issues and topics that we didn't cover, including the Conservative Party leadership race and uh, what to make of the way that that campaign is uh, shaping out. But that, that'll be for another time. Thanks again for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.